is fly a new church in the well-steepled Wilmington. Fly a new church in the well-steepled Wilmington. And I subtitled it, Spiritual, Spiritual Integrity is Radical. Spiritual Integrity is, rattle, is Radical. You'd have to ask that question. I, I don't know of many cities, truly, I don't know of many cities that have more churches than Wilmington does. More church buildings that are obvious everywhere. I used to do a lot of real estate closings and as people came in, especially from the New England area, one of the most common things that they would observe is the number of actual church buildings that exist and how prominent they are, uh, not just in the downtown area, but all around Wilmington. It certainly is true. Uh, Many years ago, my brother and I started a magazine and we felt compelled to explain in the opening page of the magazine why we were starting another magazine. It seemed absurd. We were aware of the thousands and thousands of periodicals and journals and magazines that existed out there. And we recognized that we should have a need for this magazine. In the same way, there must be a need for a church. Well, there's always the solution. You could say, well, there's, there's a need for the church to multiply and grow. And, and, and that's why River City uh, has been going forward. That's why it was started. That, that's not the case. It, it really is not started as a church plant in the typical sense that we think of uh, let's go out and, and start a church between here and uh, Bergal or between here and Southport or something of that nature. Wilmington has plenty of churches, so it's not just a matter of geography. But the question for us is why a new church in well-steepled Wilmington? And the answer is simply this. We are earnestly desiring to be biblical and to be biblical in every area of the whole counsel of God's Word. And if we saw another church that was already doing that well with a real genuine sense of integrity and demonstrated that by their structure and by their vision and by their commitment, we would unequivocally all be at that church. I do pray that's the case. I certainly would be. And I hope you would be. But we find as we look at the Scriptures and as we look at the history of the church and as we look at the condition of the church visible in Wilmington, that there is a desperate need for a new church in well-steepled Wilmington. And if I could say what the answer is in one word, it's this. It's integrity. It's integrity. When I was growing up, I grew up in the Methodist church in the 60s, which was a remarkable thing in North Carolina. In North Carolina, uh, Methodist and Baptist were uh, the, certainly by all means the larger number, the, bar, the greater part of the population, larger percentage, was Baptist. And next to that was Methodist. Uh, Presbyterians were uh, probably uh, a far third. They weren't really close uh, in terms of Methodist and Baptist in North Carolina. In those days, Baptists actually believed the Bible. And many of them carried a Bible on their person much of the time. When I was a child, most Methodists actually believed the Bible and worship was reverent and pastors trembled at the Word of God. But as a child growing up in the 60s, I, with my own eyes and ears, observed much change in the life of the church and certainly heard it from my parents as they observed it. I've said before, most of you know this, when I was growing up, our family discussions at the dinner table, and that was back kind of a historical thing there. We actually had dinner tables back then. But at the dinner table every night, we sat and the discussion was not sports. It was the things of God and of politics. And great animated discussion about the things of God and about politics. And so I I learned firsthand about the great shift that was taking place. But the great shift 
took place in this format through a lack of integrity. It took place in the sense of men in the pulpit who took vows of ordination. And as part of those vows, it said, if you ever find that you disagree with any of these vows that you've taken, you will make it known to the congregation and to other elders. But they didn't do that. They didn't do it in the Methodist church. They didn't do it in the Presbyterian church. They didn't do it in the Baptist church. And the churches moved and moved and slipped further away from the gospel as men held to all kinds of unwise and irreverent and anti-biblical thinking, one by one embracing these various aspects of non-gospel thinking, but never coming to their congregations and simply saying, I no longer believe what I said I believe. And I can't think of a better example than the Presbyterian Church in the sense that the Presbyterian Church, more than any other church, has the clarity of the Westminster Confession. Not just a one-page statement of faith, but a beautiful document followed by a lengthy document called the Larger Catechism, followed by another significant document called the Shorter Catechism, in which all of these things are beautifully set forth and set forth with the very passages that they established these things on in 1647. Integrity is the reason that there's a need for a new church in well-steepled Wilmington. And I want to read this morning a passage that speaks of that as Paul himself recognizes the great concerns, the great cost of staying close to the Savior and not wandering away. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's Word? In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at the 11th verse, we read this. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange I speak as to children. Open wide to us also. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we do rejoice in the clarity of this, your word. We thank you for the evidence of 4,000 years of church history unfolded before us in your word. And we do pray that you would bless us now in this hour with a teachable spirit. Grant us with a genuine sense of urgency and of thanksgiving for the Spirit-born gift 
of Christian integrity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a great deal of need today when we think about the importance of the local church. Some of you have seen t-shirts, I know I have, that say, Jesus, yes, church, no. What a remarkable statement. Jesus, yes, church, no. That's virtually the motto of most parachurch organizations, by the way, even though they don't actually have t-shirts that say that. The Jesus movement in the 60s and the 70s saw a great need of vast reform. I just told you that I observed it and my family observed it growing up in the 60s that much of the church began to move away from an integrity in regard to understanding and embracing the whole counsel of God's Word. Regrettably, it was a zeal not according to the Bible. A zeal not according to the Bible, and it spawned the parachurch movement, and the parachurch movement in many ways encouraged libertine, independence, and every form of sectarianism that exists today. No one even questions the idea of establishing a new church today. No one trembles at the idea of do we even have the right to start a new church We're so used to the idea of liberty and of independence and of parachurch that it seems odd when someone comes and says, well, wait a minute, what does the Bible say about the very method, the very operation, the structure of the kingdom of God? Well, he does speak to the issue of structure and the kingdom of God. And he speaks to it clearly. And it is the church. It is the church with elders And as God would gift the church with deacons, it is the church with reverent worship and the preaching of God's Word. It is the church with outreach and evangelism. It is the church with charity and service. It is the church with the love of the brethren. It is the church, brothers and sisters. That is the structure that God Himself has given. And hear me on this. No other. But there is nothing new under the sun. We find ourselves looking over the history of the church and we see that this is not the first time in which people have revolted against the idea of the church. It was called monasticism in the early days. And that's one of the great benefits of the reform. Most people aren't aware of that. People have been leaving the church for centuries saying, I'll do better on my own. And sometimes they find other people to leave the church with them. And the reformers said, you can't do that. You don't have scriptural warrant to leave the church. You can plead for the church. You can plead with God and do whatever you can in reforming the church, but you cannot leave the church itself and form something new. They used to call them monasteries, now we call them parachurch. You can't do that. Augustine, writing in the 5th century, said if a man will not have the church as his mother, he may not have God as his father. And it is true. We must embrace the authority and the very structure that God has given us and delight in it, for it is good. It comes from God, and therefore it is good. There are many New Testament metaphors for the church 
I mean, we should recognize them and know them and delight in the various nuances that are set forth. A holy and royal priesthood, we are told, offering spiritual sacrifices to God. Us, a holy and royal priesthood, a chosen race belonging to God. Us, a separate nation whose king is the eternal God. A kingdom is what we are. A temple indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Us, a set of branches connected to Jesus Christ as the vine and the Father as the vine dresser. A flock led by the Good Shepherd. A household or a family with God as our Father. A body with the Lord Christ as our head. And a bride with Christ as our groom, as our husband. As we look around today, there are not many who embrace the biblical picture of this in one fashion or another and feel free to clip and modify as they so choose. Brothers and sisters, it is our desire here at River City to receive, to study the Word of God, and then, like Ezra, to obey it, to conform our understanding, our worship, our conduct in every way to the revealed will of God. And that can be reduced, really, to the word integrity, as we claim to be lovers of the Word of God. And we are not the only ones in Wilmington who claim to be the lovers of the Word of God. When I was in school, I didn't like math. I didn't like math at all. Um, but I took it and I uh, had older brothers who excelled in it, which only made me look worse. Uh, but I had to really study. I had to, it's the one subject that I really struggled with more than any other. And one of the reasons I struggled with it so much was all the words they used. I just didn't know the terminology. And I remember my teacher saying over and over again the word integer. And I want you to know, up until I was a senior in high school, I didn't know what an integer was. Now, there were lots of times that my teacher said integer. And I was like, you know, I just kind of pretended I knew what he was talking about. What is an integer? It's the very word we get integrity from. An integer is a whole number. That's all it is. He could have just said whole numbers and I'd have been happy. But no, the teacher always wanted to use the word integer. It's a whole number. One, two, three, four, five, ten. It's complete. It's perfect. It's true. It's consistent. You don't need to add anything to it or take anything away from it. That's what integrity is. It's true. It's consistent. It's honest. It's pure. It's unimpaired. It's sound. It's virtuous. It's like a ruler. It's something you can measure and it's always the same. One is always one. Three is always three. It's like scales that are right and true. That's what an integer is and that's what integrity is. And the Bible describes not only the good shepherd in that way, but David as an archetype, as, a, as an antitype in some ways, a foreshadowing. In Psalm 78, listen to this. In Psalm 78, it's a beautiful psalm uh, of shepherding, of governing. And it's a long, lengthy psalm, but at the end of it, 72 verses, in this psalm. Listen to this in verse 70 as we think about integrity. 
He also chose David, his servant, that is, God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From the care of the ewes with the suckling lambs he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. I hope you recognize the two themes that are set forth there. The two themes, of course, are tending and keeping. The very charge given by God to Adam in the garden, tending and keeping. Elders in the church, tending and keeping the vine, which is the body of Christ. Elders in the church, tending and keeping to their own souls and to their families and to the body of Christ, tending and keeping, nurturing and guarding, blessing and defending teaching and clarifying. Brothers and sisters, integrity is radical because the evil one will come against us again and again and again. You remember even just last week we talked about those cardinal virtues. Those cardinal virtues, you remember, I hope you know them, they're prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. And what is fortitude? It's courage, strength, and perseverance. Fortitude is courage, strength, and perseverance. And that last one, perseverance, is the one that will often get you. Because it's really not all that amazing to see someone who's courageous for a moment. It's not that unusual to see someone who is strong in a given season. But it is rare to see anyone in any circumstance who is courageous and strong and perseveres. But integrity cries out for that. Integrity cries out that indeed, by the power of God's Word, we would do all that God would have us to do, and we would do it in the strength of the Holy Spirit, and we would, to His glory, do it day after day, and year after year, and grow and prosper in His blessing and favor. Integrity, brothers and sisters, is radical. God calls Abraham, in chapter 22 of Genesis, to sacrifice his own son, And with integrity, he gets the fire and the wood and he takes his son and he binds his son and places him on the altar and he pulls the knife out and he's ready to do it. Abraham is courageous and strong and faithful and he perseveres at the time that it's most difficult for him to persevere. He perseveres at the time that it's most difficult for him to persevere. Perhaps you know the story of the Iliad. As they go out in the Iliad, the opening scene of that great work of Homer, they're going, of course, to Troy is where they're headed. And they have the largest armada ever assembled in the world at that time. But they can't get out of the dock because the gods are against them and they're blowing the winds toward the dock, toward the ports, and they can't get their boats out. So Agamemnon turns around, who is the head of this great army, this great naval uh, armada, turns around, goes to his home, grabs his daughter, brings her out in front of everybody and sacrifices her right there in front of everybody. And the winds die down. And they leave. But his daughter didn't mean that much to him. And his mother, his wife, knew it. 
And there's great difficulty throughout the rest of the life of Agamemnon because of that. He sacrificed his daughter, but his daughter didn't mean that much to him. God calls Abraham to sacrifice his only son that was actually from him and Sarah. A son of blessing. And at that moment, he's challenged like he's never been challenged before, nor ever will be challenged again in integrity. And Abraham, as we all know, passes beautifully. Integrity, brothers and sisters, is radical. Joseph is blessed and prospered in difficulty. He is indeed for 13 years in slavery or imprisonment. For 13 years. He goes from being a 17-year-old young man to a 30-year-old young adult. 30-year-old man. Before the Pharaoh discovers him and brings him out and the wonderful transformation takes place. But what happens before that? Potiphar's wife pulls him aside while he's still a young man. Potiphar's wife pulls him aside while Potiphar is not at home. And Joseph, as you know, is over all the house and no one would know. Joseph is called Joseph is called to integrity at the very moment, at the very point of great temptation. And God strengthens him mightily. And we today t- still talk of it and are strengthened and encouraged by the integrity of Joseph. David laid in his life Numbers the people, and it is a sin before God in his pride, and God brings great affliction among the people. And as David seeks to sacrifice before God at the end of that great difficulty and encounter, he goes out and finds a place to sacrifice, and he wants to pay for it. But the man who owns the field and the man who owns the cattle says, No, my king, you take all these things, and I'm delighted to give them to you. It's my privilege to give them to you. You take the land. It's yours. You take the sheep and the goat and the cattle. They're yours. And David says, I will not sacrifice with that which costs me nothing. And God won't allow Abraham to sacrifice with that which cost him nothing. And he won't allow Joseph to sacrifice with that which cost him nothing. And he won't allow River City or you to sacrifice. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I love that story. My mother called them shake the bed, make the bed, and to bed we go. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego stand before the king at the very risk of their lives in front of a lot of people. And with great reverence and honor and dignity and courtesy and respect, hold to their integrity. And it costs them a great deal because the king doesn't just seize them. And say, oh, I just wanted to know if you would be willing to go to the furnace 
but he throws them in the furnace. And as you recall, the very men who throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace are themselves consumed by the heat of the furnace. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not. And God honors those who honor him. Daniel, in the same book, is accused of being unfaithful to the king because of his prayers, but he will not stop praying, and he will not stop praying publicly, or at least in the view of others, and it cost him to go to the lion's den. These are only foreshadowings of true integrity and the integrity of Christ. We think of the integrity of Christ. At 12 years old, his parents are looking for him, and they're confused as to where he would be. As if there were any place in Jerusalem that he might be. Perhaps he's off playing with other boys, maybe riding on a donkey or playing games or some kind of sports with the other boys. And when they find him in the temple, Jesus, who is integrity, is confused by their confusion. Where else would you look for me? He says to them, in effect. Where else would you look for me? But here at the temple of my Father. May that be so for each of us daily when people are looking for us in regard to character and faith and obedience and righteousness that they would know that they can find us in the Ten Commandments. They can find us in the Sermon on the Mount. They can find us in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6 with husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church and wives loving their husbands and honoring them in such a way as to even call them Lord as Sarah did Abraham and parents nurturing and loving their children and children rising up and calling their parents blessed. May it be that people would know where to find us at River City. He says to his disciples that he has set his face like flint, that through integrity he has come into this purpose for one reason, and he will not turn back. Listen to his words in John chapter 12, just before the ending. You remember that John has much of the end of his ministry, much more than the other gospel writers do. And in John chapter 12, just as we're moving from his public ministry into that last week of great difficulty and passion, and of the suffering and death. John chapter 12, verse 20, we read this. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, Now the answer is different than you would think. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, 
there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now listen to verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Christ is recognizing that his public ministry is coming to an end. And while that's been taxing and challenging, it hasn't been like the week ahead of him is going to be. And as he begins to realize the magnitude of what he's stepping into and the frailty of his flesh, he just is overwhelmed for a moment. But he recognizes that this is the moment for which he has come. May it be so for each of us, in whatever way it be, that as Christ would call upon us, to be children of the Most High God in each of us every day, that we would say it is for this purpose to bring glory to the Father. It is in the bending of our will as Telemachus bends the bow or in fact decides to bend his will instead, that we ourselves would do that. And Christ does it beautifully as an example for us. And on our behalf, he bends his will to the will of the Father, saying, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You know what's interesting about that? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Where have you heard Christ say those very words before? It's when the disciples say, teach us to pray. And He says, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And then Christ, in perfect integrity, says, Thy will be done once again in the garden before the cross. They're not merely words. They're the very nature of who He is. In 2 Corinthians this morning, as we look at the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians, if you're not familiar with 2 Corinthians, I encourage you to do so. It is virtually an autobiography of the ministry of Paul. It is virtually an autobiography of the ministry of Paul, and I encourage you to become familiar with it. It is in many ways, please hear this, it's the pilgrim's progress of the Bible. Second Corinthians is the pilgrim's progress of the Bible. In Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, we read this, listen, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. How we look around us today, brothers and sisters, and we see people who have received the grace of God in vain. We see a large and numerous and moving, visible church. And we see very little integrity. And therefore we see very little real conversion and very little real glory to the honor of our Heavenly Father. Verse 2, For he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. Integrity is what he's talking about. In much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, 
in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by the glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Paul says again and again that he and those with him were not merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word. As James encourages us to follow. And John likewise encourages us saying, let us not love with word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Martin Luther knew something about integrity. I love the story of Martin Luther, and I like it because I'm able to grasp through some understanding of history the story as it unfolded. The great difficulty with us today is that we know how it came out. We really honestly don't give Martin Luther very much credit, and we certainly don't give Joseph very much credit, because Joseph finished his days as the governor of all Egypt in extraordinary, unconceivable wealth and prosperity and position. And because we know that, we have little grasp of what it meant for him before Potiphar's wife or for the 13 years he served as a slave. And because we don't grasp the reality that Martin Luther was confident he was going to his death when he appeared before the Diet of Worms. Martin Luther knew about John Huss in Bohemia a hundred years before him, a man who spoke up like him about salvation by grace alone through faith alone, having read the Bible for himself. And he knew what they did to John Huss. They took him out in public after condemning him in a mock trial. And while he was alive, they tied him to a post and cut out his tongue and then burned him at the stake. Martin Luther knew about John Huss. So Martin Luther, when he went to the Diet of Worms, knew what he was going to. And everyone around him said, Martin, you're a very fine professor. You've got a good job. You've got an opportunity, Martin, to speak to a lot of people, to influence a lot of people. If you'll just get off this salvation by grace alone thing, if you'll just stop beating up on the Pope and talk about other things. There's lots of other things in Scripture, Martin. There are lots of other things to talk about. But Martin knew there was a need for the day. Martin Luther understood integrity. He understood where the battle is raging. And he said this. It's in your bulletin. Turn to the back of it and look at it. He says, If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be faithful on all the battlefield beside is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that one point. What does that mean? Please hear this. It means that no matter what else Abraham did, it meant nothing if he had failed in Genesis 22. That's what it means. 
And Martin understood that. Where the battle is raging. So we can meet, brothers and sisters, as many other churches do, and talk about a lot of things in Scripture, because there's a lot of things in Scripture, and just never talk about husbands being men as God created them to be. And never talk about the beauties and wonder and delight of femininity and of womanhood. And never talk about the gospel and the holy commands of God and the Ten Commandments, which is the foundation for the gospel. And never talk about reconciliation, but just let people go their separate ways and God bless them. And never talk about loving one another as Christ has loved us in such a way that all men would know that we are His disciples. Or never talk about true, reverent worship in which the people of God tremble at the presence of God and the goodness and the glory of God. But these are areas, brothers and sisters, in the year 2009 in New Hanover County where the battle is raging. And God has called us for this purpose. Why a new church in the well-steepled Wilmington? Because of integrity, brothers and sisters. Martin Luther knew about it. Calvin knew about it. Knox knew about it. Both men, Calvin and Knox, escaped with their lives more than once. The Puritans knew about it. As the church tried to compromise, the Church of England tried to compromise in 1662 significantly away, trying to reach a middle ground between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. And the Puritans recognized that that's what this was. And they said no, and they argued against it and spoke against it openly again and again and again in debates. But they ultimately lost. And the Parliament passed an order that required that all of them submit to a theology they believed was incorrect. And over 2,000 pastors left their pulpits on the same day in August, St. Bartholomew's Day in 1662. They were men of integrity because they would not compromise what they understood to be not only the whole counsel of God's Word, but where the battle is raging. They understood that that was the battle in their day in England. Brothers and sisters, I am delighted in the integrity of the church history of certain individuals. I'm delighted that we see in Christ perfect integrity and that we see by the power of the Holy Spirit that He calls us and strengthens us just as he has those we've already cited, to integrity in our lives, wherever the battle is raging. I do praise God before you this day for the integrity that I see in Fitz and Bob and in Steve. What a delight that God has called these men. What a privilege it is for us that they are our elders, that we would be diligent and faithful to honor them, to love them, to plead with God for them and for their families and then to bring glory to God as we seek to cooperate with them as they discern and execute the mind of Christ here at River City. I am delighted, brothers and sisters, that God has granted me uh, the heritage that He has given me. King David said, The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. I have a goodly heritage from the Lord. And I do this day stand before you saying 
But I will, by God's strength and by God's grace, in all my power, as long as I live, serve God with all of my heart, mind, soul, strength. I plead with you to pray for me, to pray for all of us, that we will be faithful. I've heard of other churches that began I've heard of other churches that began well and were derailed very quickly. And I pledge to you that I will do all I can that that will not be the case here at River City. And I plead with you to make the same covenant before God that we will treasure what God has given us that we will tend and we will keep this great trust that God has granted to us. The Apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And I say to you, I am not ashamed of the works of God. I am not ashamed of the will of God. I am not ashamed of the ways of God. And I am not ashamed of the worth of God. And I do look forward to God bringing glory to His name here at River City. I realize that I'm going long and I'm aware of the time, but just be over it. Um, I want to make a quick comment before I finish and then we'll go into the Lord's Supper here. Two quick comments of application. Many people would say yes and amen to everything that's been said this morning. I want you to understand that most people in most churches would say yes and amen to everything that's said this morning. And then when difficulty comes, they just go down the street. They just go somewhere else because they got their feelings hurt or whatever the case might be. And the best analogy I can give you is just the idea that everybody thinks the idea of being physically fit is a great idea. Everybody thinks that's a great idea. But few people want to regularly get up and go to the gym or do whatever is necessary for physical fitness. That's that perseverance part of fortitude, courage, strength, perseverance. So we should not be surprised if on a day like today they were all saying yes and amen. But that God would strengthen us to persevere in this May it be so that God would do just that very thing. And in the sense of a practical application, I'm delighted that God has given us such a vivid practical application on this day with so many other providences coming together. Ruth Holes is here playing the piano this morning. You can't be here this morning and not be aware of the difference. And I do praise God for that, sister. I heard her just play the piano beforehand, before the service this morning. I just thought, wow, it's never sounded like that when I play it. I want you to hear this very carefully. I delight that God has given us this example. When Ruth came to the church and remotely hinted that she might be available to play the piano, I immediately stepped away and said, she asked me, when are you ready? You pray about it. Like I had to pray about it. I was like, I don't need to pray about that, sister. 
please hear me on this. Everybody here knows that Bob Carter can actually play the piano in some limited fashion. But everybody here knows that Ruth Hull plays much better than Bob Carter. It would be nothing but foolishness and pride for any member of this church to ever hold on to anything in this church, any seat in this church, any office in this church, any opportunity in this church, and say, Mine. For everything is God's. And I plead with God to bring us musicians. I plead with God. Brothers and sisters, hear me on this. I plead with God to bring us a preacher and a pastor who would be more faithful than I am. And that's not false humility in any way. I'd be delighted to have a more faithful pastor than you all have. I pray that God will bless us and strengthen us and gift us, and wherever we see God bringing more gifts and new strengths and new blessings, that every one of us will embrace them and say, God be praised. And delight to turn over whatever seat or piano bench or whatever it is to whoever might be able to grace that bench and do that in a God-gifted way that clearly will be to the advantage of the kingdom of God at River City. How could we hope to go forward? It's very simple. Not easy, but it's a simple process. It's prayer and more prayer and more prayer with diligence and perseverance. It's the power of the Holy Spirit in everything, walking in the Spirit, expecting God to do these great things, pleading with Him, recognizing that we will not do this of our own flesh It is a love of mercy that coats everything and lubricates the body of Christ and extinguishes the sparks that inevitably fly up. And it is a hope in God, a hope in God that He who began a good work will complete it in Christ Jesus. God has completed this work and let us plead with Him to continue and complete this work as an integer is complete to complete this work unto the day of Christ Jesus. William Bradford, the first governor of Plymouth Plantation, wrote a book about the remarkable challenges of his life called Plymouth Plantation. If you've never read it, you need to read it. On his tombstone, it simply says this, Do not easily relinquish what your fathers with so much difficulty obtained. Do not easily relinquish what your fathers with so much difficulty obtained. Our father Abraham with great difficulty obtained much. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and David and Joseph obtained much. The Lord Christ laid down His life and purchased a people for His own possession. The disciples followed in His footsteps. And the Reformers likewise. And we today, in the same manner as I spoke earlier, a holy and awesome thing has transpired here today, far more than the coronation of Napoleon. And we need to treasure that and recognize that we must not easily relinquish what our fathers with so much difficulty have obtained. May God bless us and help us and prosper us.
at River City Reformed Church. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise You this day. We praise You for Your steadfast love that endures forever. Thank You. Thank You for loving us. Thank You for caring for us. Thank You, Father, in Your grace and mercy that You have brought us this far and have promised to continue to hold us by the hand, saying, Fear not, I will help you. Bless us to be faithful to one another. Bless us to be faithful to our elders. Bless us to be faithful to the great high priest and the shepherd of our souls, Jesus Christ. And it is in His name we pray. Amen.